Let's ask for God's help. Father, I come weak and needy to my task. I would want a faithful testimony to be born for you. I pray, Lord, that in the midst of my sin, my weakness and limitations, I pray that you would show the way to yourself. I pray that you would help all of us to see the sinless God-man Jesus in these texts. Help us, Father, to, that we would do the hard work of listening carefully and handling our Bibles rightly. Lord, people gave their very lives to establish what we enjoy right now to be the truth of the incarnation. So please help us not to begrudge the labor it takes because it does take labor. Grant us now help, illumination, joy, and help us to see why all this matters at the end of the day. For the glory of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. In his outstanding book entitled Jesus Made in America, and the subtitle is A Cultural History of Jesus from the Puritans to the Passion of the Christ, uh, an author named Stephen Nichols uh, has said the following, and uh, the book is about uh, the sometimes thrilling, other times frightening, but never boring understanding that America has had of Jesus over the 300 years or so of our, uh, 400 years of our uh, existence on this continent. Uh, in the epilogue to this book, Jesus Made in America, Stephen Nichols says, I think of book titles such as the one by Anne Graham Lotz, Just Give Me Jesus. One could deconstruct the entire title. The word just in the title tells us that we need to keep things simple, undefined, focused. The word me plays right into the sensibilities of individualism, the privatization of faith and subjective personal experience, all hallmarks of American evangelicalism. And then there's Jesus. Now, of course, she means, and she does mean, the God-man, second person of the Trinity, the one who was born, made man, took on flesh, the one who died and rose again, the Lord and Savior of the universe. No one would expect all of that to be in her title, but one would at least hope to find it in the pages of the book. We simply cannot assume, Nichols says, those who claim Christ know that he is the God-man, divine and human natures conjoined in one person. And it's the task of every church in every age to teach, and teaching the cardinal doctrine of the person of Christ lies at the center of the task. He closes by saying, we need not shrink back from complexity. Jesus comes to us primarily in complexity. Jesus is the God-man, fully human, fully divine, in one person, end quote. I wonder if you have felt at all over the last two weeks the weight of that statement, that Jesus comes to us in complexity. He says it's the task of every church and every age to teach, and particularly to teach who Jesus is. 
we need not shrink back from complexity. If you're joining us for the first time here today, we are in the center of a sermon series entitled The Chiefest Among 10,000, an Advent study of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Two weeks ago, the message was actually quite simple. We simply affirmed that Jesus is a man. Jesus is fully man. And what we mean by that is that he is a real man and that he's a perfect man. Last week, we affirmed, we saw in our Bibles, and we affirmed that Jesus is fully God. It's fairly simple, too. It's mind-blowing, but it's simple. He's fully God. Uh, Using the language of C.S. Lewis, our point last week was to claim that Christ is merely a good teacher, is patronizing nonsense. He and the rest of Scripture claims that he is fully God. Christ as a good teacher, merely a good teacher, that's nonsense. It's patronizing nonsense. He's fully God. And then we learned over the last two weeks a little bit of the relevance, and we're scratching the surface here, but a little bit of the relevance of believing these truths about Jesus. So, for example, if Jesus, and he is, is is fully human, then that has a bearing on just about everything he came to do. Since Jesus is fully man, he can live in our place. He can die in our place. He can show us to God as mediator. He can show true humanity to us, and he can sympathize with us. That's if he's fully man, which he is. And then, since he's fully God, he can do a number of things as well. The deity of Christ matters supremely for us. It matters supremely for salvation. He saves us. Unless he's God, he can't save us. It matters for mediation. He, he mediates God's presence to us. And then, it matters for differentiation. In the 21st century today, Jesus is unique, and he makes the Christian faith unique. So these truths, though doctrinal, are practical, and our practice is unavoidably doctrinal. Um, Everyone's a theologian. The question is just what sort of theologians are we? If we've got to be theologians, we might as well be good ones. That's the purpose of this Advent series. So the Bible says that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Now what? Our next step is to ask the question, how? How does that work? Fully God and fully man in one person, and why does it make a difference for us today? So let's begin with this morning's big idea. Uh, The language here is ancient language. I think, although I'm not sure, I think I'm taking it from Gregory of Nazianzus, but that's difficult to confirm. So some old person said something like this. Behold the mystery of the incarnation of God, the Son. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That is right. That's true. Behold the mystery of the incarnation of God, the Son. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That might be the simplest, most concise way with what we have in our English language to say what happened. On Christmas. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Another way that you might say it and stay faithful to Scripture is that God the Son, fully God, assumed a fully human nature. God the Son assumed humanity. He undertook our nature. He accepted it. God became man. 
Uh, My favorite line in all of our Christmas carols, ironically, was penned by a 19th century Unitarian minister. Wouldn't you know it? Um, John Sullivan Dwight gave us the words, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That's, that's wonderful. First time I heard that, Johnny Mathis sang it on a record. The soul felt its worth. My thinking is this. We don't need to hide, hide that a Unitarian who denied the deity of Jesus wrote those lines. What we should say is, if a Unitarian can affirm that, how much more are we who believe in the divinity of Jesus? The soul felt its worth for the very first time, though not the last. Well, becoming, uh, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That's the incarnation. Let's start this week with an affirmation from the Free Church Statement of Faith. This is a good, safe place to start. Uh, the Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith, uh, Article One, or Article 4, in part, says, We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, one person in two natures. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, one person in two natures. I'd like to offer three reasons why we believe that. Three reasons why we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, one person in two natures. The first reason is because alternative explanations are unbiblical and heretical. Alternative explanations are unbiblical and heretical. Uh, The first several centuries of emerging heresy in the church and the seven great ecumenical councils that followed each heresy, it seems that was all predicted by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. In 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Peter stands, along with the rest of the first century church, at a wonderful pivot point in the history of the people of God. Uh, Behind Peter lay the problem of false prophets in the Old Testament. Ahead of him lay the sure emergence and reality of the threat of false teachers in the early centuries of the church. And so Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow in their sensuality, And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That's eerily prophetic of what happened from the 2nd century into the 7th century after Peter disappeared from the scene. The way of truth was blasphemed. Destructive heresies emerged as they denied their master who bought them. The early history of the church fathers reads like a series of heretical tidal waves crashing onto the shores of orthodoxy. And the church, the faithful defenders of the faith, sought to secure the footings 
of the household of faith against total collapse as the waves of heresy hit the shores. Um, So Apollinarianism denied the full humanity of Jesus. Nestorianism denied that Christ was one person instead of two. They said he was two persons. Eutychianism denied both the full humanity and the full deity of Christ. I don't expect you to remember those names, but know that each one of these positions isn't just bad theology. So we said before, bad theology just hurts people. Destructive heresy kills people. It brings upon us swift destruction. In the words of the Apostle Peter, we are denying the master who bought us if we buy into those. And so in the year A.D. 451, 520 bishops gathered in a city called Chalcedon, uh, which is near modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. In the year 451, from October 8th to November 1st, a little paragraph was drafted, and it's become known as the, uh, the Chalcedonian Confession, a statement about who Jesus is. And that confession, this little paragraph, dealt three crushing blows to all three of those heresies systematically. The key statement in the confession uh, was originally written by Leo the Great, who was one of the bishops of Rome. Four words in particular serve to undercut all three heresies. Here they are. Two natures, one person. That's what Leo wrote. Jesus is two natures, one person. So this creed affirms that Jesus has two natures. He has a divine nature exactly like God the Father. And at the same time, he has a human nature exactly like us except without sin. Uh, The creed also affirms that Christ's incarnation, as as he becomes incarnate, each nature retains all of its original characteristics. So he doesn't compromise anything of his divinity or his humanity as he becomes man. And finally, the, the creed at Chalcedon held that Jesus Christ is one person, not two. Uh, Stephen Nichols, once again, sums up the mind-boggling work of this council by observing this, that Chalcedon witnessed, quote, the unanimous consent of 520 bishops trying to get contemporary 21st century church leaders to agree on anything much less intricate issues like Chalcedonian theology borders on the miraculous. I would agree with that. That's a miracle. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He's one person, two natures. So the first reason is that alternative explanations are unbiblical and heretical. Second reason we believe in one person, two natures is that one of Christ's natures clearly does some things, the other nature does not. And we're going to actually have some fun right now. One of his natures clearly does some things that the other nature does not. For example, Luke chapter 2 verse 7 says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. And yet Hebrews 1.3 explicitly says that the son upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he's weak as an infant. Wow is right. And yet he's powerful as God. 
But let's remember, God is not weak. And human beings don't typically uphold the universe by the word of their power. And yet, it is totally true to say that the Christ child upheld the universe by the word of his power while wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. That's a mystery. It's even clearer when we turn to something like his temptations. Hebrews 4.15 tells us plain as day that Jesus, the Son of God, in every respect, take heart, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And yet, let's be careful to affirm freely and fully what James says in James 1.13. God cannot be tempted with evil. Is your brain starting to break? That's good. If it's not, you're not investing right now. Jesus Christ was in every respect tempted as we are, and God cannot be tempted with evil. He's God. How does that work? One of Christ's natures clearly experiences some things that the other doesn't. Or think about his death. Mark 15.39, among other passages, tells us that Christ breathed his last. He truly died. On the other hand, Jesus himself says in John 2.19, destroy this temple, and in three days, I, I will raise it up. Or in a text we'll see in, in the weeks ahead, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. If these passages mean anything, which they mean something, they're pointing to the fact that Christ raised himself from the dead. And yet he died. How? Two natures. One nature experiences something the other does not. Finally, Acts 1, 9 to 11, Jesus Christ ascends into heaven. He's physically, uh, Luke says, lifted up, And a cloud took him out of their sight. That's how Luke puts it. That's amazing anyway. It's doubly amazing when you factor in what Jesus says in Matthew 28.20. Your outline says something different. I got that wrong. Matthew 28.20. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ is out of our sight yet with us right now. How? One of Christ's natures clearly does some things the other does not. That's the second reason we believe that Chalcedon got it right. They got it right. Jesus Christ is one person, two natures. Final reason we believe it is because anything one nature does, the person of Christ does. Anything one nature does, the person of Christ does. So the text that we're going to look at right now keep us clear that Christ is one person, he's not two. Uh, Jesus is a him, not a them. He's a me, he's not a we. Anything one nature does, the person of Christ does. So Luke one forty three, uh, Seth read it for us in today's reading. Elizabeth asks Mary, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord... 
should come to me. Notice Elizabeth doesn't say to Mary, why does the mother of the human nature of Jesus come to me? That's weird. The Bible doesn't talk that way. He's, he's one person. He's not two. Anything one nature does, the person of Christ does. Think about when the shepherds are in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord says to them in Luke 2.11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Notice, the angel doesn't preface his comments with, Since we all know that the Son of God is eternally begotten of the Father, I'm not, of course, speaking of his divine nature, but rather of his human nature when I say, unto you is born this day a child in the city of David. That is, that's weird. It's a Savior, not multiple saviors. Christ is one person, not two. Anything one nature does, the person of Christ does. And you could multiply examples of this over and over again. Uh, John chapter 8, verses 56 to 59. Um, the man, Jesus, says, before Abraham was, I am. Or in Mark thirteen thirty-two, God the Son, God the Son says he doesn't know something. The time of his return. Or the Bible speaks of the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, Colossians 2.8. That's very strange. The crucifixion of the Lord of glory. Or just the simple affirmation that Christ died. Christ died, 1 Corinthians 15.3. It's clear that these texts assume that Christ is one person. There are at times only one nature doing something, but nevertheless, he's, he's Christ who's doing it. Now, that's a mystery, but it's not unintelligible. People gave their lives for it. We should be grateful to understand it. So, Jesus Christ is God incarnate, one person in two natures. Three reasons we believe it. The, anything else is, is unbiblical and heretical. One nature does things the other doesn't, and he is one person, not two. Anything one nature does, the person of Christ does. Okay, so we know this now. But now we're on the hook for what we know. Because doctrine is meant to change our lives. Make us different people than we were coming in. So how does it matter? How is it important? The doctrine of the incarnation is of shattering importance for us today in the 21st century. And in the fleeting moments that remain today, I want to outline really two reasons. We've got to save reason three for next week. It fits better with next week. Why this doctrine is crucial for our lives. Three reasons God became man. Number one, God became man to become the only worthy and all-satisfying object of our worship. God became man to become the only worthy and all-satisfying object of our worship. The second of the Ten Commandments is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, which says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth, in the earth beneath or that is under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay. The second commandment is an explicit prohibition against idolatry. And what is idolatry? Um, idolatry, best definition I ever heard of it, uh, Pastor Kenny Stokes in Minneapolis uh, says it's when God's gifts become God's. That's idolatry. When God's gifts become God's. Why is this a problem for him or for us? Psalm 115, verses 3 to 8, explain. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. I hope you hear why this is of such shattering importance that we get the incarnation right. All of these church councils and creeds that we've been studying as we inch closer toward the Christmas holiday. Since the dawn of time, human beings have known instinctively that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us, namely his Divine attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. We are without excuse, Paul says in Romans 1. We're without excuse. We are without excuse as we worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Did you catch the mouths, ears, hands, feet, throat language in Psalm 115? It's the language of incarnation. That's what idolatry is. Taking God's gifts, making them God's. Why is idolatry, why is the worshiping of images so supremely offensive to our Creator God? Why is it number two on the list? You want to know why? Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. As we read in Hebrews 1.3 of the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Why is idolatry a problem? Why is America in deep weeds of the judgment? Because Jesus is God's idol. That's what Colossians 1.15 says. He's the icon, the image of the invisible God. And unlike the gods of this world, Jesus has a speaking mouth. 
and seeing eyes and hearing ears and feeling hands and walking feet, unlike our iPads, Ugg boots, and gift cards this season. They're not worthy of our worship. You see why the second commandment just lobs the ball over the plate for the incarnation? Why is God in such a twist over this issue of idolatry? Because he was planning on sending Jesus all along. He knows we need to see him. He knows we need to touch him. He knows that we worship stuff. So God took on stuff so that we could see him. Don't worship stuff this Christmas. Worship Jesus. Worship the Savior. Don't, as I heard John Piper say this week, don't earn Santa Claus's good favor and settle for just a bunch of gifts under a tree. Realize you don't earn the Creator's favor and settle for eternal joy in heaven. And then give some gifts along the way. You see why the second commandment is important here. Our gifts don't die on a cross for us. Our gifts don't empty the tomb. Speaking of the cross, here's one more reason why the doctrine of incarnation is of shattering importance, and we'll we'll close today. God became man to demonstrate humility, the queen of all virtues. God became man to demonstrate humility, the queen of all virtues. All I'm going to do is read Paul from his prison cell in Rome, writing to the church in Philippi, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want to know why pride is really, really nasty? C.J. Mahaney defines pride this way. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon Him. See how horrific pride is? It's what Satan did to get cast out of heaven. It's what Lucifer did. Jesus reversed that in the incarnation. He willingly left heaven. We are sinners, and we're still proud of what? Jesus 
left heaven, sinless, humbled himself. And he didn't simply humble himself. Humbled himself with little baby flesh while upholding the universe by the word of his power. And he took on that flesh so that there would be something for six-inch spikes to go through 30 years later. That's why he became incarnate. That's why we have Christmas. He became obedient to God to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you are not a Christian today, I hope you see how great God's love for you is. God loves you. God loves you and he wants you to be saved. He wants you to be rescued. He wants you to turn from your project of whatever, self-salvation, worshiping anything other than Jesus. Turn away from that. It's not making you happy anyway. And embrace Jesus this Christmas. That's why he came. He came for sinners. Turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. Do it today. Today is the day of salvation. And if you are a Christian... I hope you care about humble obedience to your heavenly Father in every sphere of your walk with him. The author of Hebrews reminds us, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And I would add, unlike your Savior, who did shed his blood. The incarnation, among other things, is profound self-humbling for Christ. In fact, theologians speak of the 30 years that Christ walked this earth as the time of his humiliation. That's what his life was, one long humiliation. Because, Because before the incarnation, really before the conception in Mary's womb, for God the Son, it was glorification. Angels singing and celebrating him. And on the other side, after the tomb is open, on the first Easter Sunday and his ascension to the Father and his second advent that we anticipate his future return, glorification, glory, glory, glory for Jesus. But not during that 30-year stretch in Israel. Humiliation. Profound humiliation. You ever thought of yourself, don't they know who I am? Why do they treat me this way? I know who you are. I know who I am. Do we know who Jesus is? Can we read Paul faithfully in Philippians 2? This, this is the time of our humiliation. Happily, do nothing, Mount Free Church, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So God became man to demonstrate humility. The man who taught me to preach, Mike Bullmore, looked at me eyeball to eyeball before I came to this church. You know what he said to me? David, he always called me David, humble yourself. Humility is the queen of virtues. The last application, you can just fill it in and then we'll pick it up next week, is that God became man to point us toward the goal of sanctification, which is glorification. And it's big heavyweight theological words, so we'll leave them for next week. And it fits better with next week. 
God became man to point us to the goal of sanctification, which is glorification. Uh, That's the heartbeat of next week's topic. Let me review where we've been, and then we'll point toward next week. Behold the mystery of the incarnation of God the Son. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, one person, two natures. Three reasons we believe it, the alternative explanations, unbiblical and heretical. One of Christ's natures clearly does some things that the other does not. And anything one nature does, the person of Christ does. This doctrine is important today. So that God became man in order to become the only worthy and all-satisfying object of our worship and to demonstrate humility, the queen of all virtues. Next week, the goal of sanctification, which is glorification. Next Sunday is the last Sunday of Advent. And our focus is going to be something, so far as I can remember, I've never actually tackled intentionally before from the pulpit. And that would be the relationship between God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. This, is for, this feels very fresh to me. This is, this is exciting. Um, we believe that Jesus Christ is fully man, fully God, one person, two natures, in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. How did he get that done? Same way we do, by depending upon the third person of the Trinity. He did it like everything else in his life, through the eternal spirit, the man, Jesus. And it's that same spirit of God that is in Christ that lives in each of us today when we are in Christ. That's God's gift. Next week may be a life-changing Sunday for some of us, and we'll pick it up then. Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the Bible. Um, Lord, thank you. I, I just think about these men that fought heresy and gave their lives and, and took three weeks in Chalcedon and wrote a paragraph that keeps us from idolatry and humbles us opens up possibilities for holiness and glory. Lord, please help us to realize that we stand on the shoulders of giants. We're not impressive. But you are. And I pray that you would help us as a church uh, get our doctrine right, get ourselves tucked in theologically, but that we wouldn't live lives that are so out of step with what we believe. We're so good at saying the right things and living the wrong things. So please help the city of Mound and the West Tonka area and and everywhere we go, Lord, families over the holidays as we travel, that they would know we're Christians by our love, that we'd really look like Jesus, that we who wield the sword of the Spirit would exhibit the fruit of the Spirit everywhere we go this Christmas. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.